0: Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. I'm your host, Mike Waller. The Cubs head into the all-star break, losers of nine of their last 10, and a 35-57 and overall record, which is good for fourth worst in Major League Baseball. I know this season we've talked a lot about questions, who's going to emerge, can certain guys fill certain spots, but at the end of the day, it is about winning. And so as we look back at the first half of the season, we're going to dive into some of the areas where the Cubs have struggled and try to parse out why maybe they are where they are. During the nine-game losing streak that ended on Sunday, the Cubs showed a lot of what we were looking for during the season. They played some good teams. They played series against the Dodgers and the Mets, two of the best teams in baseball, and played a lot of games very close. Now, they lost most of them late, and that's how the season's gone. But the Cubs have put up some solid numbers. They have put guys on base. That was a goal. We'll talk more about that later. But they're just not good enough to get through. I think overall, I think it's a depth of talent issue. I think this team has some good players. I think they have some good pieces, as we've discussed. But they're just not getting it done in close and late situations. Perhaps nothing illustrates the way this season has gone more than Saturday against the Mets. With the rain out on Friday, the Cubs and Mets played a doubleheader on Saturday. The Cubs lost the first game 2-1 to in 11 innings. The Cubs wasted great pitching, and in extra innings, starting with a runner on second base, they went a combined 0-6 with four strikeouts. In the second game of the doubleheader, the Cubs lost 4-3 in 10 innings. They did manage a run in the extra inning, but they had given up two on some sort of flukish defensive plays in the top half of the first, and getting one run was not enough to advance. So again, it was playing good teams, close, and not getting over the hump. Right now, the Mets and Dodgers and some of these other teams are just better than the Cubs are. But it does highlight where the Cubs have some deficiencies. Overall, in extra inning games this year, the Cubs have played 14. They're 3-11. When you look at the... Whether you call it the Manfred man, the zombie runner, the, the new rule they have for extra innings since 2020, where the teams start with a runner at second base. The Cubs started off the season well. They scored that lead runner six out of their first seven tries. But since then, they've gone ice cold. They've only scored that runner twice in the last 15. And it's just been abysmal. So overall... They're scoring that lead runner 36% of the time, which is well below league average. And when you look at run expectancy, there, there's a calculated stat. I, I'm getting my numbers from fan graphs. There are some other calculations that are pretty similar. That addresses the number of runs you would expect to score in an inning once a particular situation hits. So in the case of a situation where you start with a runner on second base and nobody out, second base and nobody out carries a run expectancy of 1.15, which means you would expect over time, bigger sample sizes, to score a little bit over a run per inning when you get into that situation. The Cubs are scoring about a half a run per inning across the season in extra innings. Now, it's a small sample size. The Cubs have only played 14 extra inning games in a total of 22 innings. So another hot run like they started the season with, and maybe they're sort of back to league average. But this is where the Cubs are right now. When you look at those run expectancy situations, you start with a 1.15 if you have a runner at second with nobody out. If you get that runner to third with nobody out, say you steal a base, there's a wild pitch, something like that, run expectancy goes up to 1.4. If you can get first and second with nobody out, so maybe maybe there's a walk, maybe there's an infield single where the runner on second doesn't advance, error or something like that, the run expectancy goes up to 1.54. On the flip side, uh, one of the things people talk about would be like sacrifice bunts. You know, do you want to give up an out, move that runner to third base, then you've got two outs to play with to try to get that run in statistically the books would say not to do that if you do a sacrifice bunt and move that runner over you would still score close to a run a game but a little bit under so with run expectancy with runner on third and one out it'd be 0.95 unfortunately the cubs have had way too many situations where the leadoff hitter doesn't do anything don't move the runner over and start compiling outs and those go down quickly if you have a runner on second with one out your run expectancy is 0.71 runner on second with two outs 0.34 if you manage to get that runner to third with nobody out, it goes down to .39. So really the magic comes in that first at bat. So what do you do? The Cubs have tried a few different strategies. They they did sacrifice bunt once against the White Sox on May 29th in a what wound up being a 5-4 loss. But in that game in the 10th inning, P.J. Higgins laid down the sacrifice, run scored on an error. Chris Murrell later tacked on a run. Unfortunately, the Cubs couldn't hold that lead. Then the 11th, Ian Happ was the runner on second base. He stole third to lead off the inning. And then Alfonso Rivas drove him in with a sacrifice fly. Cubs did lose in 12, but those were two examples where they used the stolen base to their advantage and were able to get runs out of it. Overall, the Cubs are you know one for one in the sacrifice. That's the only time they've tried to sacrifice this year. They're two for two on stolen bases in extra inning situations. The one time Ian Happ scored, uh, the other time the Cubs did not score. But again, it's all about playing that run expectancy game. When you get to a late game situation, you're in extra innings. It's all about what can I do to increase my chances of scoring? And the Cubs just aren't doing enough. The leadoff hitters are going three for 18 in extra innings uh, with a walk, a sacrifice fly, a sacrifice bunt, and a hit by pitch. The leadoff strikeout rate is about 24%, and they've only advanced the runner seven out of 22 times, which is about 28, 30%. That's really going to lead to struggles. You know, Again, I talked about the run expectancy. As you tack on outs and you don't move that runner along, the chances of scoring go down and down and down. But the other thing the Cubs are doing, and this is something we'll get into as a larger trend on the season, is they're also hitting into a lot of double plays. So far in extra innings, they've played 14 games with 22 total extra innings. They've hit into six double plays. And what's maybe the most worrisome, there was one that was a little bit flukish. They had, I think it was Ortega on second base, and somebody hit a smash and the pitcher just snagged it, and it was so quick that Ortega just didn't have a chance to get back to the base. Those kinds of things. You know, that's random noise. That's going to happen. But they have had four specific instances where with one out, the other team has intentionally put somebody on base, which again you know that increases that run expectancy. So that's a that's a gamble taken by the defensive team to put the force play into play. And in four of those situations, the Cubs have immediately then the next batters hit into a double play. And that's cost the Cubs a lot of opportunities. Those are some really good scoring opportunities that really get wasted. When you talk about individual performances in extra innings, we're really talking small sample sizes. We're talking anywhere from, you know, four to eight, maybe ten plate appearances in extra innings this year just because of the randomness of the lineups and the fact that it's been such a small number of games. The guys with the best OPS, on, which is on base plus slugging, for those who aren't familiar, during extra innings, Patrick Wisdom at 1.833, Wilson Contreras at 1.25, and then, surprisingly, Jason Hayward and Anderton Simmons at 1,000. When you talk about who's been up the most in extra training situations, it's Ian Happ, P.J. Higgins, Christopher Morrell, and Nico Horner. And they've all really struggled. Actually, Chris More- Christopher Morrell has probably been about league average in that situation and pretty much in line with what he's done during the course of the year. But Happ, Higgins, and Horner have had a lot of opportunities and not necessarily gotten it done. But again, when we're talking just a couple handfuls of plate appearances, you know, Ian Happ comes up and gets two hits his next two opportunities and all of a sudden, you know, he's back to average or above. So I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock in that. But this does feed the larger problem the Cubs have had this year, which is close games. As I said in the beginning, they've played a lot of close games. They've played a lot of really good teams really competitively. One game that stands out to me is they played the Yankees in New York and the Cubs lost 2 to 1 in 13 innings. Those are games that the Cubs have had opportunities to win all year. You know, at 35 and 57, I think you are what your record says you are. But it is also possible to take that and realize that if we had a little bit better hitting in scoring situations, if we were taking better advantage, not hitting into as many double plays, get a few more runs on the board, maybe that takes some of the pressure off the bullpen, or maybe that you know one of the things this team has not done is – tack on runs when they have a small lead so while the bullpen has I think actually performed pretty well on the whole when you they're constantly working with one run leads tie games being down one you just leave them no margin for error so any any run they give up is really pivotal when you look at the Cubs record in close games you know they're 29th in the league in games decided by one or two runs they're 18 and 32. so if they're 22 games under 500 overall, 14 of those have come from close games. So they've lost some blowouts for sure. There have been some games that were just absolutely dreadful. This team is getting into a lot of situations where they're close against good teams. When you look at the Cubs' performance in extra innings, the numbers really spell out what they're doing. They're 29th in the league in OPS. Only Washington is worse. They're 3-11 and 11 overall. Again, only Washington has a worse record in extra innings. They've lost 6 out of 7. They're 27th in on base percentage. They're 28th in slugging. 25th and hard contact rate. They've got the ninth highest strikeout rate and one of the lowest walk rates. When you look at that, that means that they're not moving runners around. They're not hitting the ball hard, which doesn't force the defense to make tough plays. It means you're not getting the ball deep into the outfield to potentially advance a runner, and it piles up. When you look at the Cubs on the whole, and we talk about that record of being 18 and 32 in games decided by one or two runs, there are a series of statistics calculated by baseball reference that I'm going to use for this podcast. There are certain leverage situations, and then there are also other game situations that all kind of measure what we, whatever we would call clutchness. I'm not a big believer in clutch. It's kind of this magical, you know, I remember this time where this guy was up in a really big spot and he had a really bad at bat. Therefore, that's what stands out in my mind. So when I think about him, he's not clutch. Or this other player who... You know, he's not very good. He doesn't put up great numbers on the season. But I remember these two times where he just crushed it. He hit some late game home run. You know, you might look at like a David Bodie. You know, David Bodie has not been particularly great in clutch situations the last few years. But that first year he came up, that twenty, was 2018, you know, he had a lot of big hits, a lot of late home runs. He had that classic, amazing moment for himself that he'll never forget. And I think any of us would have loved to be in his spot for that moment. But the Cubs are down three nothing on national TV on Sunday night against the Washington Nationals. You know, down three, three two count, two outs, bases loaded, and he hits a grand slam to dead center field to walk it off with the whole country watching. I mean, that that's the kind of stuff we remember, and it gets into our minds, and we then remember that guy's clutch, even if the numbers don't bear that out. When we actually talk about clutchness, there are a few different ways you can break it down. Baseball reference has what they call a leverage index, which looks at how much a particular bat could sway the win probability in that game. So one of your highest leverage situations would be maybe a game, let's take that Bodie situation. You know, it's late in the game. It's close, not super close, but there is a range of options that can happen happen in that at bat. David Bodie could have gotten out in some way. That would have ended the game, no runs, Washington wins 3-0. He could, have gotten, he could have hit a single, scoring one or two runs. He could have hit a double, scoring two or three runs. could have hit a triple, scoring three runs. He could have hit a home run, scoring four runs. And because it has that big sway, it can go zero to four. That, it's got a big range of win probability changing. So when you look at the high leverage situations, they tend to be, and this, this isn't universally true because you can have a high leverage moment earlier in a game, but they tend to be later in the game because the other team is going to have fewer chances to counter whatever it is that you do in that bat. They also have medium leverage, which again is kind of probably typically the middle innings or maybe late in the game where nobody's on base, you're down two or three runs. You know, your bat is not single-handedly going to change the outcome of the game probably, but it can contribute to it. And then low leverage situations. Those would be early in games, at-bats that happen, play appearances that happen, in blowout wins, blowout losses. You know, there's just there's not nothing you do in that at-bat is really going to change the game all that much. When you look at, sort of, you know, quote-unquote clutch situations. We talk about close and late. That's a close game in the last two or three innings. We can look at two outs with runners in scoring position. That's always going to be a big situation. doesn't matter if it's the first or the ninth. You don't want to leave those runners in scoring position. Um, I would also look at kind of a lesser clutch situation so when the margin of the game is greater than four runs in either direction it could ultimately play into the outcome of the game but the game doesn't hinge on that at bat so to start this discussion let's set the baseline on where they are on their overall you know whole season numbers all situations included you know the cubs are basically a league average 101 ops ranks them 14th but statistically you're basically average in terms of hitting into double plays They've hit in the third most double plays in baseball with 81. Um, they're about average in the number of times guys have come to bat, so those numbers kind of do equalize, and we're not talking about small sample sizes or anything like that. When you look at on base percentage, they're tenth overall at 319, and they're sixteenth in slugging at 390. So with those as a baseline, you know the Cubs are pretty average on offense. You know they're not they're not awful. You know, they're they're getting guys on base, they're scoring some runs, where they're getting into trouble is they're hitting in double plays, which is something we also see in the extra inning statistics. So we look at leverage now, we look at low leverage situations and the Cubs are fifth in the league in OPS at 113 in low leverage. So that tells me early in baseball games, they're getting on base, which is borne out in the results on the field. We've we've seen a lot of games this year where the Cubs get out early, get guys on base in the first couple innings, score a run, score two, and then they just kind of vanish. So that number does make sense based on what we've seen in the season. In the low leverage situations, in addition to the 113 OPS, they've only hit in 12 double plays, which is you know 17th. So you, you want to be in the bottom half of double plays grounded into. So they're doing a little bit better on, they're hitting into fewer double plays and they have about an average number of plate appearances. So again, it's not a statistical outlier. As you move into the medium leverage situations, the Cubs OPS goes down to 96, which I would argue, you know, 90, when 100 is league average, you're 95 to 105, you're kind of within the statistical range of no, of normal or average. So the Cubs are pretty average in medium leverage situations. The double plays tick up though, they've hit in 29, which is good for eighth in baseball. Um, and they do have their bottom third in number of at-bats in medium leverage situations, which I think, again, plays to sort of the Jekyll and Hyde of this team. They play a lot of close games against good teams or else they tend to get blown out. I mean, that's not universally true, obviously, but I think they've had more high and low leverage situations than they have medium leverage, which now plays into the high leverage numbers. When you look at the high leverage numbers, their OPS is 84. So that puts you about 15% below average across the league. They've hit into 40 double plays in high leverage situations, which is third in baseball. They have the second most plate appearances in high leverage situations. So they're getting into these situations a lot, which does sort of play up the grounded in double play, but it's indicative of what they've done on the season. You know, they're, they're in these close games. They're having a lot of chances late and they're not getting it done. When you look at the stats a little bit differently and, and go into close and late situations. So now these are going to be specifically late innings, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth, and the game's close. The Cubs are last in baseball with a 74 OPS plus, which puts them last in baseball. They've hit into 16 double plays, which is fourth worst in baseball. And they have the third highest number of plate appearances. So again, They're in these situations a lot, and they're just not producing. When you look at numbers with two outs and runners in scoring position, I know this has been something that's highlighted in those extra inning games. It's also something fans watching the game, we just see it. We see it all the time. The Cubs have an 89 OPS, which is good for 21st in the league. They're second in plate appearances. So, again, they're getting runners on base. They're getting runners into scoring position, and they're just not bringing them in often enough. They're 14th in the league in on-base percentage and 23rd in the league in slugging. So, again, that that feeds into the narrative of getting guys on base, not moving them around. When you're ahead or behind by more than four runs, the Cubs numbers suddenly look a lot better. They've got a 110 OPS+, plus, which puts them 10% better than league average. They're still ninth in hitting into double plays, but I think that's the nature of a high-contact team that maybe doesn't have a ton of speed. They're 2nd in the league in, in plate appearances in these situations which again is indicative of you're not being, you're not a good team. You fall behind late. You're just going to rack up these appearances late, but they're seventh overall on base percentage and they're 16th in slugging. Again, that's kind of the trademark for this team. So when you look at this team, they're getting on base. They're not driving the runs in and they're either sort of coming up short late or they're, they've also had some really big wins. I mean, they've scored 20 runs, um, they can kind of get a snowball effect sometimes they're they're having a great day and they'll just keep piling it on which is going to increase these numbers and some of this and you have to think about this in in context of a game the high leverage situations you're also going to tend to see the better pitchers if it's close and late you're probably going to be seeing the other team's top setup guy their closer some reliever that's hot high leverage situations it might be against a starting pitcher again it might be against the closer When the margin's greater than four, you're probably seeing the middle of the bullpen. You're seeing a tired starter late. You're seeing some kid that just brought up to eat innings because the bullpen's taxed. So you're, you're not typically seeing the best pitching, so you would expect those numbers to go up. It's not just a factor of not being clutch. And just for comparison, you know, so this year they've got a 101 OPS plus. Good for right in the middle of the league where you'd expect. Last year they were at 97, so they've improved that over this year. As a basis for comparison, 2016, the team that won the World Series, they had no PS plus. They was third in the league at 109. When you look at grounded in double plays, the Cubs are third most this year. They were fifth last year. They were twenty-sixth in 2016. On base percentage, that's one that stands out this year. You know, last year they were twentieth in baseball and on base percentage. This year they're 10th. That was something they set out to do earlier in the season. Jed Hoyer talked about. It. He wanted to have More guys make contact. Didn't want to have the three true outcomes with a lot of strikeouts, a lot of home runs. He won more consistent. Let's get guys on base. Let's get them around. I think the next step is having a deeper lineup. You know, it's not about having four or five guys. You get four or five guys that get on base, you might get a run or two. But then there's the whole rest of the lineup that's not producing. And that's kind of what the Cubs have seen this year. In terms of slugging, the Cubs slugging is down from last year, but not by much. They were about 14th last year. They're 16th this year. You know, when you go back to even 2016, they were six. They weren't, they weren't league elite. that actually was not a massive home run team. Now, when you look at this team on an individual basis, so we know what the team's doing, who's doing well, well, the best hitters, when you look at this team across the board on the season are Wilson Contreras, Ian Happ, Christopher Morel, Nico Horner, Patrick Wisdom, Seiya Suzuki. They all have OPS pluses at least 10% better than league average. They've got some young guys like P.J. Higgins. Come on, he's hit really well. He's got a season OPS plus of 138. Now he's got a smaller sample size. If he plays more, that's going to come down somewhat, but he's playing well. When you look at the individual numbers and you look at what stands out, I think the two that stand out the most are Ian Happ and Wilson Contreras. When you talk about high leverage situations, Wilson's OPS plus is 41. Ian Happ's is 35. That's way, way below league average. When you look at close and late... Wilson Contreras is 62, and Ian Happ is 48. When you look at two outs and runners in scoring position, they both actually get a little bit better. Wilson's 110, so he's about 10% above average. And Ian Happ is 98, so basically he's right there with league average. On the season, Wilson's OPS Plus is 133, and Ian Happ's is 129. So these guys are making a lot of noise in more low and medium situations, which is fine. Every run counts. You know, It doesn't matter if you win 4-3. That doesn't say that that run you scored in the second inning when the game was Zero, 0 was not important. It was. It all contributes to the whole. But there is a perception that these guys aren't hitting in clutch situations, and the numbers would bear that out. Now, is that a factor of actually being clutch, or is it statistical anomaly due to sample size or a particularly cold run? Or maybe they are feeling pressure to take on leadership of this team and come up and be the guy that delivers in those big moments. And so maybe you're not taking your total normal approach. And maybe also, you know, again, in those situations... If I'm on, D, if I'm the pitching team and I'm gonna, I see Wilson Contreras or Ian Happ coming to bat, I know I probably better come at him with one of the best I have. Make sure I've got the best reliever facing them. Maybe I feel like flipping Ian Happ to the right side, so bring into a left, bring in a lefty to face him. So all those things play into this. There are a few guys that stand out on the positive side. Nico Horner has an OPS plus in high leverage situations of 192. Patrick Wisdom is 177, and Seiya Suzuki is 168. So based on the numbers this year, you get in a close-late situation. Those are the guys you want up, and Patrick Wisdom has definitely hit some big shots. Nico Horner was a major contributor in that win on Sunday. Seiya Suzuki has had big moments early in the season and then over the last month. So those are things to watch out for. When you look across the rest of the roster, Rafael Ortega is a little bit below average, but he's 87. He's actually one of the better ones. P.J. Higgins, very small sample size, so this is a little bit... Out of whack probably with what he would do over a over a full season or more opportunities. But he's an OPS plus in high leverage situations at 222. When you look at someone like Jason Hayward, he's rough in all the areas, and his OPS plus again 100 is league average. His OPS plus is actually a negative 18. When you look at close and late situations, the numbers are pretty similar. Patrick Wisdom stands out at 207. Seiya Suzuki is 145. Nico Horner's 120. So again, those guys are all significantly above average in close and late situations. And then when you look at Ian Happ and Wilson Contreras, not so much. Christopher Morrell's a little bit below average there, but he's 86, which is respectable, especially for a rookie. Jason Hayward's at negative 100. Rafael Ortega's 140. But really, you know, you're looking at those core guys. Those are the guys you might want to build a team around. When you look at Two outs and runners in scoring position. Again, Patrick Wisdom is still 164. Nico Horner's 141. Seiya Suzuki's 153. Like those are guys you want up when it matters, and you know they may come out the second half have a cold stretch and those numbers can come back to earth. But right now, that's that's the season, and they're 92 games into the season, so it's not an insignificant sample size. In the second half, we're gonna want to see if those trends continue. We're gonna we'll see what happens over the next few weeks if Wilson Contreras. Ian Happ or anybody else get traded? Actually, some of those clutch numbers may make an argument for a team to go get Patrick Wisdom if they need a bench power bat, or if they've got an injury and, and need somebody who could be, you know, maybe an average to slightly above defensive third baseman who can come in and provide, you know, right-handed power. Some of the guys we're going to want to see get more time. I want to keep seeing Christopher Morel. He's absolutely fantastic. If you follow him on Instagram, there was a segment that the marquee network put together the other day morel loves to dab guys up and hug them and it's just hilarious they put together a video montage of him fist bumping catchers and umpires and getting to first base and having these awkward hugs and it was a great one with paul goldschmidt on the cardinals and pete alonzo with the mets where he's coming in for the hug and they're kind of like what are you doing dude and it winds up being like a half hug but Morel's smiling and apparently the team is yelling from the dugout hey it's real he he loves doing this um, so it's just cool to see somebody who loves playing baseball that much. So the more Christopher Morrell I can get, the happier I'm going to be. Nelson Velazquez is a guy who's been playing more lately, and he's he's got massive power. He's hit a couple bombs. He's got a big arm in left field. Threw a guy out in a game this weekend that was just an absolutely perfect throw. Laser beam from left field, one hop to Contreras, exactly where it needs to be, and the runner was out by 10 feet. Pretty sure it was Francisco Lindor. And I want to see... First and second base have really been the big problems for the Cubs who went into this a little bit on the last podcast. The, those two positions are not producing. And so, second base looked like it was going to be Nick Madrigal. He came out, got off to a poor start. He is a high contact guy, but he's a high contact guy that doesn't hit the ball hard. So, it's a lot of ground outs, pop outs, that type of thing. Not a lot of speed. He's not going to hit for power, doesn't walk a lot. So, he's got to have high batting average. He's got to be hitting 300, 310, you know, to be productive and be somebody who can stay in there every day. He's maybe average at best defensively. Maybe. And at first base, the production's been down. Some of that is Frank Schwindel, who was so hot to start last season, came out slow this year, then got hurt. He's missed about a month, but he's back. He did look good in the Mets series, so hopefully that's a sign that he can get back. If he can get back to being what he was in the second half last year, maybe he's a guy that can stick. Alfonso Rivas has played a much better defensive first base than Frank Schwindel, but... Again, he's he's had his moments, but on the whole, he's just not you know he's he's not hit very well. But he is younger than Frank, so he's a guy who'll get more opportunities. Maybe he in a playing time situation, maybe he gets optioned down to just get at bats every day in AAA. There's also another interesting guy playing in the minors right now, Matt Mervis. He plays first base and he's been having a fantastic year. So if the first base production continues to struggle, he might be a face we see in the second half come in and get some at bats. So that's what I want to see. We'll talk more about pitching in another podcast, but just to highlight from the first half, I really like what I've seen from Justin Steele, Keegan Thompson, um, Albert Azalei tweeted yesterday that he, well, he tweeted a battery symbol that was about 90% full. So I think we're taking that to mean that he's close to getting back to action. I would love to see him get back in and maybe he can get back into the starting rotation by the end of the year. If not, he's probably going to be more of a bullpen role. Maybe he'll be that guy who can, can come in for a starter who's not having a good day and throw the you know two to four innings of relief in the middle of the game to get the game late and keep the Cubs in. The other thing that happened this week is the major league draft. We can talk about that more. I'm not really a draft guru. I just follow a lot of people. But it was interesting to see that the Cubs took a clear turn from what they had done during the Theo Epstein era. And Theo's time, especially the top picks, were college hitters. And they had a big run of those. You know, Chris Bryant, Kyle Schwarber, Nico Horner, Ian Happ, you know, Let's go out in our first pick. Let's get a guy who was one of the best hitters in college baseball. This year, the Cubs drafted nine pitchers out of 10 picks. Their first two picks were pitchers. Their first pick was Cade Horton, a right handed pitcher out of Oklahoma. And he's a guy who he missed the 2021 season with Tommy John surgery, missed the beginning part of this year coming back, struggled early. Regular season stats really don't, certainly don't look like a first round draft pick. You know, ERA around seven for a good chunk of the season. But when they, when Oklahoma hit the Big 12 tournament, and then the NCAA tournament, he was fantastic. His, you know, a sub three ERA, striking out a ton of guys. He was throwing 90, 98 miles an hour, getting great spin on his breaking balls, and really looked like a guy who could, who would be rising up the charts. And there was some speculation that he would. I think the Cubs surprised a lot of people taking him at seven, but there were some scouts who said he was the best college pitcher available in the draft. So he's definitely a high upside guy. He's a guy that, you know, if he comes through the system, can stay healthy, get, you know, take care of that elbow. Don't go back for a second Tommy John. But if he can build on what he did this year, get in the pitch lab, get the right pitch mix, then he's a guy who, you know, could rise up the system fast and potentially be uh, high in the rotation starter. In the second round, they drafted Jackson Ferris, a left-handed pitcher, high school kid out of Florida at 47. The interesting thing with him is he's a really high upside lefty. He's six foot four, throws mid 90s already at 18. Some scouts thought he was the best available high school pitching prospect. So the Cubs, and some scouts had him rated higher than Kate Horton. So the Cubs came out with two really high upside guys. I think one of the reasons they, some of the speculation for why they went with Kate Horton in the first round, as opposed to some of the other, maybe a college bat or some of the other players, is the way the college draft and signing works is you get bonus slots, you get a total bonus pool that you can apply across your entire draft. So Kate Horton will get whatever contract salary is kind of defined by the by the CBA, but in terms of the bonus money, the Cubs can probably drop him a little bit below what would typically go in that slot, they call that underslotting because he's a college guy. He doesn't have, you know, the, the high school pitchers already have big scholarship offers to go to top baseball schools. So the Cubs are going to have to pay Jackson Ferris if they're going to get him to come into the system because otherwise he'll just go play college ball for three years and potentially come out you know, just as well or better on the other side. So I think the Cubs probably tried to balance that out, so get Kate Horton a little bit under slot, go over slot with Jackson Ferris, and go from there. We'll see if that pans out. Please like and review this podcast wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. We're available on pretty much all the major platforms at this point. Again, thank you for listening, and go Cubs!